Hey there, Back Channel Radio fans. Producer Suzanne Hogan here. Just want to say thanks for listening. And if you don't mind, do us a big favor and help us get the word out about this project. You can tell your friends or rate us and leave a review. And if you want to find out more information about Back Channel Radio, archival documents or more pictures, or make a donation, you can do so at backchannelradio.org. Uh, just a heads up, this is episode five in a six-part series. Episodes are meant to be heard in order. So if you're here for the first time, go back and start at the very beginning. And a special thanks to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place that's exploring our ongoing and historic relationship with water by presenting historic works of art to some of today's most ambitious and celebrated artists. Find out more at mmam.org. This is Back Channel Radio. So far, we've heard four episodes of a wolf spider island story, and in them we've learned a bit about what it takes to live in a boathouse, what kind of people would want to make them their homes, and what it took to establish this community. We have two episodes left to share. The themes of this one involve the passage of time, aging, and what that looks like on the river, change, essentially. We're calling this one, Where the Water Meets the Land. The reality is, most of the original people who chose to make the island their year-round, permanent home, who started living here in the 70s and 80s throughout all the legal battles and changes, continued to live alone. Most of them were loners to begin with. By the time I started living here, a lot of them were in their 70s, some older. How does an elderly person on an island who's made their home off the grid get care in those later parts of life? The answer is, sometimes it's left up to their neighbors. Like the situation with our friend Tira Falk. Here's my partner Gertie again. Well, at first she said, Gertie, write down this address. So it felt like overnight, Gertie and I became end-of-life caregivers for our friend and longtime boathouse resident Tira. And she gave me the address of this storage garage. She had all of her tools and really expensive wood she's been collecting for years and a trailer and windows to build like a whole house from scratch and like all these materials she's been collecting. I was confused, I was like, what, what am I? She didn't tell me she was dying. She just said, if anything happens to me, go there and take all of it. And then she called back like a couple days later and she was like, Hinting that she had a little bit of cash hidden, and yeah, she she would just call me randomly and give me a little more clues. Basically, she was calling us every few days, mentioning very specific items that needed to be located, almost putting us on a type of scavenger hunt. And then, like the third call, she actually told me that she had cancer and she didn't have long to live. We lived upstream from Tira for a handful of years, but she had been on the island long before me and Gertie came along. So just a couple of months prior to learning that she was dying from stage four lung cancer, she had moved from her floating home and into a little house on land in Wisconsin. Actually, it was why she moved off the island, although she didn't know it at the time. She didn't want to leave her boathouse, but she had become too frail to keep up with the demanding workload, chopping wood, carrying water, starting two-stroke motors by hand, off the water, Gertie and I kept up the friendship and helped her when she needed it. I started going there to mow the lawn and go get her groceries and stuff like that. It was just such a whirlwind. It quickly went from mowing her lawn to all of a sudden 
we're both doing round-the-clock end-of-life care, which is not... We're not trained for that at all. Tira's story, the way she lived her life, and also her death, spurred me to think about how ephemeral the culture of this place was. Living on the water year-round, boating in and out, hauling gas, hauling everything, only gets harder as you get older and your body changes. For a lot of people who initially came here because they wanted to escape from societal hassles, it got more complicated. It leaves me to wonder what the next generation might look like, what the future might be like here. But to back up a bit, I want to tell you about our friend Tira Falk. She was complicated and amazing. She was a really interesting human being. And well, first of all, she taught me a lot about carpentry and um, woodworking. Even though I was a trained carpenter or trained cabinet maker at the time, but she was just like next level. Dira was a woodworker who came from a long line of boat builders who originally hailed from Norway and eventually settled on North America's Iron Range, up near the Canadian border. She used tools from the time she was a young child, learned how to build boats, and eventually taught herself how to build boathouses. And like nobody gave her the respect you know, that she deserved when it came to that. Well, in that trade, it's just, I think it's really hard to be a woman. She moved onto the island in 1987. Going through her stuff after she passed away, we found all kinds of things, of course. Some of it treasure, photos and letters from long ago, including a couple of old VHS copies of local interviews. Here's a clip from a show that was called The Spirit of Winona, which we heard a little bit from in the first episode. The quality isn't that great, but at least we get to hear Tira's voice. Now, your space is, is really very, very lovely. Thank you. Tell me about building it. I understand that you actually built your boathouse all by yourself. Uh, I did. Over a period of eight years, though, mm -hmm. uh, it was a little bit rough at first. Um, but just over the years, you know, Winona's wonderful for rummage sales and salvaging out of some of the old houses that they've been tearing down and I just gradually uh, collected windows and doors and you know these beautiful old antique boards and mm -hmm. just uh, put it all together. She was an emotional person, funny, sensitive, and sometimes volatile. When I first met her I she was very standoffish it just took a long time to build her trust in me and for her to realize that she would fit right in with my friends. And um, I think the fact that she was gay, she thought maybe my friends would judge her or something like that. Then we slowly started building a friendship, but it took probably six years to gain her trust and... Um, I mean, I totally understand that she was very wronged by men, so she had issues around trusting men. Tira was open with her friends about having survived terrible abuse from a young age. I've been on the river almost my entire adult life, and it was for many reasons that I came here. She's very symbolic of the type of people that used to end up on the island because... I think it attracts people that are looking, either looking for more out of life or trying to heal from something or 
yeah, are just looking for that place to sit with yourself and process and heal. Like she said, Latch Island changed her life, you know? It, I think it's done that for a lot of people. Rupke's one of them. I mean, I'm one of them. When you're that surrounded by nature and the elements, there's something that makes you feel really small in the universe. It's a really good feeling if you have like a lot of past trauma and pain, you know? It's like the universe is bigger than my microcosm, you know, and something really healing about that. She was complex, but the things that we bonded over were simple. I think Tira found that same thing with me. Like, she, we could have a pretty uncomplicated relationship. It was on her terms. Yeah. She could, like, retreat when she needed to. Totally. Yeah. And I would respect those boundaries. Yeah. Um, But it's, it was, I learned a lot just about relationships friendships and how rewarding that can be breaking through the crust if you're patient you know because we all have whatever things that we're struggling with and it's just really important to remember that we all bring certain things to the table and we just have to kind of trudge through the swamp together in contrast to Chris Parnell's decorative, flamboyant, and artistic dwelling, we come to a smaller, more graceful dwelling and meet the craftsman, or rather craftswoman, who has built it and makes this efficient boathouse her home. This is Tira Falk, who lives in one of these lovely boathouses down here. Hi, Tira. Hi. Tira, tell me about the lifestyle down here on the river. What, what makes you uh, live down here by the river? Oh, for me, I think it's just the romantic beauty, moonlit nights, mist on the river, big herons flying overhead, uh, just an incredible variety of birds that are all nesting and having babies up in the canopy of the trees. Uh, the seclusion, just the feel of the water, you know, it's a very soft, natural environment. I'm from Duluth, mm-hmm. and, you know, so I grew up on Lake Superior and was around boats in the water all my life. I had a little skiff when I was a child and, you know, went out on the lake, and I think everybody loves the water, don't mm-hmm. you? Oh, really? yes. Uh-huh. And, you know, where the water meets the land is a blessed, sacred spot, I think, in all of the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm just drawn to that. I never had the chance to interview Tira like I did John, which made it extra special when I found these tapes. I'm very impressed with the neatness of your whole cabin. It's very lovely. Well, Tira, tell me what it's like living alone out here. Oh, I feel completely safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have never had a moment of any kind of fear uh, from anything, whether it be people, boaters, mm-hmm. wildlife, you know, mm-hmm. in the woods there. Uh, 
plus I have neighbors here, but I have never given that a thought. And you know, that was really one of the most wonderful things coming here. I mean, this is such a splendid life. I think it's a real close-knit community. We help each other. You know, when we go through the floods or storms, your neighbors are really there to mm -hmm. help with any fallen trees or any little disasters that may have occurred. Um, just generally a tight community, caring, supportive, mm -hmm. considerate, and a real variety of interesting people. And then there was this one from a show called Minnesota State Lottery's Environmental Journal. There's a lot of hardship, plenty of danger, but it really is all worth it. For the people living in Latch Island's Boathouse community in Winona, the river has been a guiding force in their lives. Dying takes a long time, except when it doesn't, and hospice would visit regularly to check on all of us and help talk us through the process. Gertie and I had both dealt with death before, parents and other people we were close to, but to be in a situation of such enormous responsibility with a friend so suddenly was a new experience. Overnight, it felt like it went from helping out with logistics stuff to being death doulas or, you know. Not everyone can handle situations like that. Some of her older friends who she had been counting on to be around during this time didn't come through or couldn't. Everyone has their reasons. So it was us, her neighbors from Wolf Spider, and her longtime friend Sally who were there in those final days. As hard as it was, it was a real honor to like be there in that way for someone that was I mean I was there when my my mom died and I was massaging her feet and like really intimately there with her but with Tira it took so long to gain her trust and be in the inner circle that for her to ask us to do that was a real honor. Writing an obituary is a challenging responsibility. The summarization of someone's entire life in a short stanza or two. Writing a person's obituary while they're still alive, looking over your shoulder from their deathbed, when that person is kind of a control freak with trust issues, is an even bigger challenge. But with a life as rich as hers had been, it wasn't hard to write something good. We weren't with Tira when she died. Her friend Sally was. She told us that Tira had been calling out to her mother and grandmother, and Sally told her it was okay to go, and Tira took her last breath. Tira Irene Falk died July 16, 2019. We knew that she wanted an informal gathering on the island with tacos, and we took care of all the details. She wanted her ashes placed in the river by Latch Island. Gertie and I organized an outdoor ceremony and carried out her final wishes with friends gathered around. I played my guitar and Gertie read the following passage, which Tira herself had written for this specific moment. Think of me as stardust now, casting soft light over flowing waters. You are my people, good river folk. Think of me now as I thank you for just who you are and for how much you all meant to me. And now I'm off to New Orleans. So, death almost always is emotionally hard. But then, this particular death also turned into a bit of a logistical wild goose chase. Tira made Gertie the executor of her will. 
how do you honor somebody, somebody's stuff after they're gone? On top of the scavenger hunt of relics, Tira had written out a very complicated, very intentional will that needed to be executed to the letter. Everybody she wrote in her will was very difficult to navigate trying to get stuff to because a lot of them were like old hippies that are living off the land in like Texas or living on the Iron Range or spread out all over the country. And yeah, so there's a lot of different elements and we're still going through her stuff and we're surrounded by it right now. She actually had really amazing style and a real eye for cool stuff. I mean, most of it came from thrift stores and stuff, but it was, she was very intentional. Caring for someone as they're dying is one of those experiences that defines our life as human beings. Something else that we define ourselves by is the stuff we surround ourselves with while we're here. What we think is important to cherish and keep. Tira left all of her important things in our hands to redistribute and in some cases just figure out what to do with. Being the sentimental person I am, I couldn't just throw away boxes of love letters from old girlfriends, mementos of old pets, photos, and fur clippings. During this time, as I was going through some of those boxes of memories she had so carefully filed away, trying to decide where everything should go, I found some court documents. There were transcripts that described verbatim an incident that happened many years ago, in which she had shot someone who had come onto her property. This person was known to have molested her as a child. They had survived the shooting. This was their first-hand account of what happened on the transcript. No public accusation was ever made, and this person was never brought to justice for their years of abuse. And while I am not a fan of violence and guns in general, I did find some poetic merit in what I had discovered. It was like literally finding out your friend was a vigilante justice renegade. I struggled to find the right words to describe this part of the story. It's really personal. But when someone dies and you're there being a part of it, you kind of absorb part of their story. There's an overlap, and then their story becomes part of your story. So while I was wrestling with all of this, I asked Gertie, what is it I'm trying to say by sharing this? And he said something like, that your friends and these old-timers that lived here were badasses. The house she built is still floating, maintained by its new owners who we rarely see. It remains an elegant testament to her strength and skill. So much of all of this has been about this older generation and their stories, but like we mentioned in River Rats, there's also a younger generation on the scene, some of whom are also invested in creating a viable future for the boathouses on the island. Like Moses Simon, who didn't choose to live here, rather he was born here, in a boathouse. And a lot of the original spirit of the place lives on in him today. Thank you. I try to, to really take the time to take care of people. You know, it's, it's important to do that little bit of extra that you, when you can. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's important to try to, to help people. And I think that's what the Boathouse is about. You know, like even if you're mad and feuding with somebody, if they're in trouble, you're going to go help them. You know, if, even if you're mad at somebody and you see that they're starting to get beached, uh, you know, starting to sit on land, their Boathouse, you're going to let them know because you know that you want them to help you do that. You just have to be together, you know. And it's, it's really nice to know, even if maybe you're mad at somebody, that you can kind of rely on them for that just mutual survival down here, which I think isn't experienced in normal society. You don't need to mutually survive on a day-to-day -day basis. 
When the pandemic first hit back in 2019, the island proved to be a refuge from some of the outside stress. It was easier to be outside and to social distance, but COVID changed the way we were able to interact with our elderly neighbors. We couldn't gather inside or have them over for dinner. Moses was working in a nursing home during that first wave. It was pretty wild. It was extremely, you know, at the time, very emotional, very hard to deal with. Moses recalls how people's attitudes towards nurses, how emotional strangers would get with them in the beginning of the pandemic, was very different from how they'd react just a few months later. I don't know. I, I volunteered to do it. I didn't have to take care of COVID patients. Like, we found out that our second patient had COVID, and we you're not allowed to have a beard to get tested to wear a N95 mask. So I speed shaved my beard with our razors, which are the worst razors in the world. So in about 15 minutes, I shaved a, a pretty tough beard and I was just bleeding all over. And I'm like, I got to get fit tested really quick for this N95 mask so I can care for these people. So I, I, for me, it was, I had to step up. It was, it was something I had to do to take care of those people. It's weird at that time, it was very bizarre. Like people don't care about nurses normally and they don't care really about nurses anymore. <laughs> but at that time, it was like, you're this hero of society, which felt really weird. Yeah. To have, you know, people thanking you. If, if you ever said you were a nurse, people would thank you. And start to cry. <laughs> yeah, well, like, thank you so much. And then it's so funny, you know, <laughs> six months later, they forget about it. And they don't care. Yeah, it's like teachers <laughs> and I, cashiers. I, I did. That, that's what got me through uh, caring for people with COVID and the extreme stresses and, and sorrow and loss of, of doing that job was, you know, just I, I was a hero and I felt strongly that I was being an American hero at that time. As I mentioned earlier, Moses was born on the island, just a few spots downstream from where we live. One rainy, chilly autumn evening, we walked down the path to his boathouse. This is the footprint of my old boathouse. Very small. It's 10 feet wide by, I think, uh, maybe 18 feet long. My mom, when I was actually due, I was due on like October 1st, and I was pretty late. I was born October 10th, but there was no roof on the boathouse when I was actually due. So they were going to have a floating uh, open-air berth. But luckily, uh, I was a little bit late and my dad got the roof finished. Wow. But they were going to do it. They yeah. They were just going to do it. It was just it was going to happen. Yeah, that was their plan. Moses wasn't the only child that was born and raised on the island. But it's hard for me to imagine someone giving birth here in this day and age. What was the circumstances of your birth like? Like, what, like was there anyone, um, I mean, you have all this perspective now as a nurse. Do you think that was like um, an irresponsible decision? Was there like a medical professional? Program? There was a midwife there. Yeah, there so there was a midwife yeah. and a doula. Um, I don't know that I would do it. My wife told me, hell no, we're not. That's what, yeah, and you're a parent, you're a nurse and you're a parent now. Yeah, so, so have, my like, wife, absolutely not. My mom now says she would never do it. And she kind of has, looking back, almost, uh, you know, a little bit of PTSD about the whole experience. But, How old uh, was she? She was 27 at the time. Um, she had uh, leukemia, which she, th she thought she was going to die from. So she didn't, you know, it, it was very unlikely that at that time that she would survive. So and they, then her doctors had told her she wasn't able to have a child before that either. So... It was kind of a, you know, unpredicted thing. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was, they had, they had a midwife, they had a doula. Uh, when I was born, the cord was wrapped around my neck, so I was very purple when I came out. So they immediately put me in a boat and <laughs> boated me. 
that, uh, yeah, to that's land. the other thing I was wondering about too. Because I mean, we've had to do that with uh, you know more than one of our neighbors who were having like a medical emergency, mm-hmm. and we're like, well, okay, we're the ones that are going to get the call at seven a.m. Then we boat them out, and then drive them to the hospital. You yeah, know, it's like a whole extra step to get care. So, so they did have to do that with you. They boat yep, you yeah, out. Yeah, I went to the hospital right away. Wow. But uh, and everything was fine. Yeah, I guess no brain loss that I know of. Wow. <laughs> He doesn't live here full time anymore, but he's still around a lot. He cares deeply about this place and it's important to him to share it with his own children. What was it like for you, I guess? Like what comes to mind growing up here as a little kid? The ducks. My first word was duck. They're always out there. So just watching the animals. I I always loved animals. It was a good community. I loved it. I loved, uh, you know, learning to walk in the woods here. You know, the front yard was this island. I have pretty good balance, so my my mom always said it was because I grew up walking over, <laughs> stepping over sticks on the way home. Yeah, it's 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 different living in a boathouse. Like at at times when I lived down here, I would kind of get a little bit of land sick, where I would feel like I was moving if I wasn't moving. Yeah, like standing still on land, you'd you'd feel kind of dizzy. John Rupke's also got great balance. He was like a grandfather figure to Moses when he was little. We did have a refrigerator, but it was too small to hold a lot of stuff. So I would have popsicles in the summer, and John kept them at his house. <laughs> and so it was fun. I'd always go over there and get my popsicles. Um, and then he, his his place always seemed like a mansion to me. Yeah, the temple. <laughs> he had, yeah, yeah he, he had everything there, and he had lots of figurines of animals and stuff. So uh-huh. it was this, uh, you know, this great place over there. So you moved off the island when you were four, and mm-hmm. then you moved back as a young adult with your yeah. partner. Mm-hmm. What I remember from moving off, I remember I was mad because I had to wear clothes. I was accustomed <laughs> to being completely naked all the time here. So it, it was a big adjustment to tell a four-year-old that they have to wear clothes when they're outside. When Moses was a kid, his mom had leukemia, which was a factor in them moving off the island. It's a reality that others have had to deal with as well when health challenges can come up on top of living in an already challenging environment. She's doing pretty good now. But yeah, so it was because it was just hard living down here for someone that's going through that. Um, she needed power, electricity for things. I don't know if we had a generator at all. Yeah, we did because we had the first light down here. That was a, a big thing. We had the first light on Wolf Spider. It was just a tiny one little lantern and everyone came over and looked at it and said it was too bright. <laughs> <laughs> were there like a lot of meetings leading up to it too? Like, okay, we're going to get this thing. And there were people like, that's cr- just too much. <laughs> I don't and know like, about that. I hadn't yeah. heard about that. <laughs> I, think, I think John might, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of overlap between <laughs> your stories and his stories, like on the either end of the yeah. timeline. He remembers being around for some of the island's heyday of parties and sweat lodges. It was just very welcoming. I, I never felt any fear down here. It was just everyone... I felt safe with everyone that was down here. I'm sure there was stuff going on that was dangerous. I just, it, it didn't ever crunch, cross my consciousness. Not having grown up on the river, I feel like I'm kind of like hyper aware of like the, the potential for danger and like the things that can go wrong. And, and it seems like all of you guys who were, have been here a long time, or for you, you were born here. Um, and even John, like he... He doesn't really acknowledge that. He's like, oh, no, this is way safer than being in town. And I'm like, well, well, you could fall through the ice. You could drown. You could, a tree could fall on your house. Like, all this stuff can go wrong, you know? Like when he fell through the ice three years ago? He didn't tell me about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he, he was worried because it was a flood, but it was also frozen. And he was worried about the rabbits. So he, there was this rabbit that he cared about. So he was boating 
to, to land to give lettuce to the rabbit every day. And he uh, ran into some, he was in the front of his boat, and he somehow fell through and then went through the front of his boat. <laughs> Did he use his, um, his homemade picks to pull himself out? It wasn't, it was shallow. Like, he was okay. just able to get up and get back in his boat and go back and warm up. Wow. Yeah, no, he, he didn't uh, pass that one along to us. <laughs> I, I've cared for thousands of people, and he's the healthiest person at his age, I think, you know, mental health-wise and just ability-wise. He, it's just amazing what he accomplishes, and I don't know, you know, yeah, he hasn't adapted his life, but he, he's remained, for the most part, safe, you know. Yeah. The, the people I care for, they, they fall down and hurt themselves much worse than he does going to the bathroom so yeah, like yeah totally it, i guess the the risks are higher down here but he's aware of that and he understands that um yeah i i, I respect him a lot just for his ability to maintain and he's kind of explained you know some of the ways that he's he, he has changed his processes with things a bit there's just part of him that isn't isn't going to give it up like it's he's going to be here that's that's what he wants he wants to be here till the end so I know I've said this a lot already, but living here is hard, especially on Wolf Spider Island. And this account of one of Moses' winter breaking point moments can pretty much sum it up. You go to bed at 10 o'clock, get the wood stove <laughs> as full as you can, and it's completely dead by 4 in the morning. So you'd wake up and the cup of water next to bed was frozen solid. <laughs> like, that's how cold it was. It was... The moment for me that I, I had to leave was... I took my porta potty up and was trying to empty it, but it had frozen solid. So I'm up there with a tire iron trying to chip out my porta potty, <laughs> trying to get it out, pouring hot water on it, and then chipping more and trying to. That, that was just too much. Yeah, for me. that's not right. For Moses, all those experiences of weathering tough circumstances and helping his neighbors influenced the path he chose. Stay afloat has become sort of a catchphrase in the boat punk scene. I think it might be accredited to my friend Maddie from a little stencil he made during an early boat trip. But for Wolf Spider Island and all the floating homes out here by Latch, what does that mean to stay afloat? Well, the literal translation's obvious, but the deeper possible meaning, for me, has to do with keeping one's unwieldy dreams alive. No matter how impractical they might be or how little money you might have, it has to do with staying true to yourself and your vision. And for a place like Latch Island, Maybe it also has to do with the nostalgia for a thing you can still see, but that's fading and changing before your eyes. As threats like climate change and the potential for gentrification loom on the horizon, where might this special floating neighborhood end up in the future? I'm that gay guy that lives in a boathouse who keeps writing radical letters to the people of Winona. That's the advantage of being poor is you can say what you want to say. It's, it's the old, old saying, uh, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. It's also where you can donate to the project. Every bit helps. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. We heard audio this episode from Minnesota State Lottery's Environmental Journal, hosted by Joe Alexander, and The Spirit of Winona, hosted by Joyce Woodworth, courtesy of HBC-TV. Special thanks to this episode to Gertie Tonjam and to Moses Simon. 
Thanks always to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves its place. And thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, and individual donors on Patreon. Back channel radio podcast episodes and bonus content are made possible in part by support from the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place committed to ecological stewardship and justice. The museum's six-acre campus was a large sand pile on the bank of the Mississippi River in Winona's busy commercial port. Now it's home to a six-gallery museum and education center, and they are delicately restoring a five-acre prairie garden. Learn more about exhibits and events at mmam.org. Stay afloat.